Good morning, and welcome to episode 628 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. It says specifically, the scout may not move and strike in the same turn. That seems like an unambiguous rule, but I don't know, maybe the rules are different from board to board. Hi, Ben. Stratego discussion spilling into our Marlins team preview podcast. That is what we are doing today. Later in this show, Sahadev Sharma of BP will be talking to Joe Fursaro, who is the Marlins beat writer for MLB.com. But in the first segment, we are having the Marlins chapter annual essay author and the managing editor of Beyond the Box Score, Brian Grosnick on. Hey, Brian. Hey there, guys. Thanks so much for having me. We are happy to have you. So I guess we should start with the way that the Marlins offseason started, which is the Stanton extension. And we've had a few months to think about it and mull it over now. And there was kind of this this multi-stage reaction to it when it was signed, where at first it was, well, the Marlins signed the largest contract in North American professional sports. This is crazy. And then it was, wait a second, I don't know that this is exactly the way that that headline makes it sound. So a lot of your essay was about whether we can trust the Marlins, whether they are on the level and serious about winning, and whether this contract in particular was a sign of that one way or another. So having had an offseason to reflect, what is your current thinking on the Stanton contract, whether... Stanton is getting screwed here, or whether he is just getting immensely wealthy and it's wonderful, and does it tell us anything about the Marlins' true intentions? Well, uh, th- there's kind of a lot to unpack there, but I, I definitely think that the the first thing is that, yes, uh, Giancarlo Stanton's going to get incredibly wealthy, and he's probably a very happy guy at this point. As for the rest of it, like even after these last couple of months, I really still am confused by this move in, in certain ways. I think that the Marlins are committed to winning, but not at the expense of losing money. And so this uh, extension is really it's a really great deal for them because it allows them to get out of it. If it gets to be an untenable situation, it allows them to get out of it. If Stanton somehow decides that the Marlins aren't where he wants to stay because the team isn't doing what he wants them to do, but it's at such a great discount to the team, uh, getting those first six years at 107 million and then having the rest of it being so, so heavily backloaded that I don't see this as much of a, a losing proposition for the Marlins. The, the worst case, case scenario for them might be that he's an eight warp player for the next six years and people think he still might be after that and then you know then they would lose him and they they wouldn't be able to pay him all the the huge amounts of money that are owed to him i would trust the marlins more though if they had made some sort of other moves that weren't necessarily win now moves but maybe they uh, they made an effort to sign some other guys to extensions, but nothing really has seemed to have come of it yet. And I think that's going to be the real thing that we can use to tell whether or not they're they're serious about winning in the long term is uh, if they lock up some of these other young players that they have with a lot of talent. Do teams lose money? I I I know that we don't get great um, reporting on teams' financials, and there there's misinformation sometimes, and there's conflicting information, and there's accountability or accounting shenanigans. 
But I was sort of under the impression that they're all just pulling in tons of money. Are the Marlins losing money when things go wrong, or are they just not making as much as they'd like? Oh, I, I definitely think I misspoke there. I think it's more about them not making money hand over fist, not not Jeffrey Loria and uh, and the other owners of the team just piling cash into their pockets like it like it seems they've done in the in the case of their stadium financing and and during the other years when they seem to keep a lean payroll but still make a, a, a substantial amount in revenue. All right, so the there are 13 years in this contract uh, that he just signed. If you had to like, if there was say a bookie that was offering you. Uh, bets on the last year that John Carlos Stanton plays for the Marlins, uh, anywhere from 2015, which would mean he plays one year and is traded either during or right after, uh, all the way to 2027. Uh, what would be the uh, what would what which one would get the shortest or the the shortest odds? Would you say which year would you guess he's gone? My guess right now is 2020. I think 20, he makes it the six six years. Yeah, I think he makes it to um, either right before his sixth year or halfway through it, and then he's gone. I don't think there's any hope that that he fills out the last uh, the last seven years on that contract. Honestly, I think they'll they'll ship him somewhere else if he's playing well enough to account for that money. And I think that if the Marlins are their track records any indication, I don't think they're going to make enough moves to be a real contending team. And at that point he may just say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to, I'm going to peace out after, after six years and, and go find myself a contender. And uh, I think if that happens, I think there'll be enough communication where the Marlins will deal them. And uh, so when do you think uh, in between now and those six years, when do you think we will hear the first credible rumors of them shopping him around in trade? Oh man, credible. I, I would say maybe two or three years down the line. I mean, unless he has more seasons like he's had this year, because I don't think you can have a credible trade rumor if he's, you know, basically the front runner for the MVP again. I, I don't think that would be the case, especially with the the cast that they're trying to present around him at this point, you know, getting guys like Latos and Gordon and and at least doing the the things that make it look like they're a team that's looking to contend in the short term. One of the the follow-up storylines to the Stanton extension was that there seemed to be this understanding that because money was deferred, the Marlins would use some of this cash to surround Stanton with other good players, help the team contend in the short term. Do you think that if that promise was made to Stanton at some point in the negotiations that they have fulfilled it, that they have held up the end of their bargain in the rest of this offseason? Sure. I, I would actually say, yeah, they, they probably have done that. I think the acquisitions that they made weren't weren't terribly uh, free agent spendy, but they added payroll to the team. I mean, getting guys like um, you know Dan Heron for free, uh, adding uh, Mart- Martin Prado, Michael Morse, those were those were moves that added veteran presence to the team. And I think that kind of for at least one season, that does enough to say, okay, you know, we we buy into this idea that you're going to add pieces around him. But again, it's one of those things that if they don't spend money on an extension for a guy who's already with the team, or maybe they don't go out and make a a medium sized splash in free agency in a year or two, then then you might think maybe they're going to walk back on that a little bit. What did you make of of those trades in particular? I mean, the the D Gordon trade, the Latos trade. There were sort of mixed opinions on whether the Marlins had gotten better or whether they had just sort of 
gotten different and changed the the composition of their roster. So how much better do you think that those moves made the Marlins, or did you like those moves in isolation? So I loathed the D. Gordon trade for the Marlins. I thought that was I, – I complain about the Marlins second base situation to anybody who will listen. Uh, I thought Donovan Solano had a good chance to be the worst regular in baseball last year. I was, I was probably wrong about that. Um, and D. Gordon's an upgrade over Donovan Solano. I don't think there's any question of that. But the guys that they gave up to get him, it really seemed like they're hurting their team in the long and in, even in the short term to make that move. I, I'm a huge fan of Austin Barnes, um, probably too much of a fan of him. Uh, so that that maybe should be taken aside. But I, I wasn't convinced that Enrique Hernandez was going to be a big downgrade compared to D. Gordon. Uh, if he were going to going to go into 2015 as the starting second baseman and they shipped him off in that deal. And then Andrew Heaney, I mean, he's a legitimate starter and he'd probably be an upgrade over Tom Kaler, um, despite the uh, the the poor performance that he had in 2014. So that trade, I think, hurt him. Uh, the Martin Prado trade made sense to me. I, I'm a big Evaldi, um guy, so I, I'm a little disappointed to see him move for a guy like Martin Prado, but I do think Prado is a definite upgrade at third base. And I think the um, the acquisition of Latos is pretty much a, a, a net positive for the team because, uh, you know, yes, they're giving up some some future talent in Discalfani, but Latos has the opportunity at least to be a pretty decent pitcher this year if uh, if he comes back from some of his injury issues. So I thought that was kind of a net positive. So in the aggregate, I thought they made some moves that may have helped them out in the short term. Um, and, you know, Gordon will be sticking around for at least a few years, but in the long term, I, I get a little itchy, especially about the Gordon trade. Now I wish we could just ask you about Evaldi. I want to hear about Evaldi, but he's not <laughs> on his team anymore. <laughs> I, might, I, might, I might give him a, a chance to talk about Evaldi, in fact. So <laughs> okay. let me ask my—I'll I'll ask my question, and it'll end with Evaldi, I'm sure. So uh, you also wrote the, the comments in this chapter, and mm-hmm. as, you're, as I was reading it, uh, there's a sort of a, a theme about the kind of pitcher that is a Marlins pitcher, and it it sort of does seem like, um, other than maybe the Twins, there isn't a team out there that is more um, identified with a certain type of pitching acquisition. Can you uh, describe the Marlins pitcher or the most Marlin pitcher? Well, the most Marlin pitcher is probably Jared Cosart at this point because they love to have guys who work the zone low. It's actually something that I, I've read in in interviews with people associated with the team that they love to have strike throwers who keep the ball low and in the strike zone, generate ground ball outs. Um, and the strikeouts thing is kind of a, a bonus, but it's not something they're really working towards. And so you've got guys like Henderson Alvarez and Jared Cosart who are like the the platonic ideal of this strike throwing ground ball pitching Marlins pitcher. And um and so that's really their type. And you know, Jose Fernandez can do whatever he wants because he's magic. But the rest of the guys on the team, they seem to really push this kind of low strike pitch to contact thing. Going into this year and the next year, I, I, that could be really interesting because, as research has shown, the the strike zone is getting bigger and getting lower. Although that may be coming up now. Um, at the end of 2014, it looked like it was maybe rising a little bit, and that. I wonder if that's going to have some sort of effect on how how good these pitchers are going to be going forward. If there's going to be a little bit of a, a pullback, and we'll see some some diminished performance from guys like Cosart and and Alvarez. But Eovaldi didn't fit that mold. He really didn't work down in the zone the same way these other pitchers did. 
he's got more heat on his uh, on his uh, fastball. So I think that might have actually been one of the reasons why they were looking to move him. It sounded like they were looking to move him for 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 a little while, and uh, he wasn't really in the plans for them going forward. And what does Prado give this team that it didn't have, other than someone who is not Greg Dobbs? To play third base. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, he definitely gives them some infield defense, which would be great for a team that's comprised of primarily ground ball pitchers. Uh, you know, their their infield defense last year was was pretty ugly. They, I mentioned briefly in the annual, they were the only team that Baseball Info, Info Solutions, uh, their shift data said that they actually made the team worse every time they shifted mm-hmm. on aggregate. Um, so having Prado in the infield is going to really provide i think a stabilizing factor i mean they had casey mcgee out there last year he's not a plus defender um and i think that'll really kind of center them and then the offense i think is a bonus really with prado at this point um i do think this is a team that's got a, a pretty decent offensive profile at this point um so any ability for him to hit something like how he hit when he was with the yankees last year would be would be great for him Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the shift thing uh, in your essay in the context of this being a club that is not real, uh, at least uh, publicly real, friendly with uh, with statistical analysis. And ESPN just did their you know analytics rankings and uh, ranked the Marlins as I think one of two teams that are um, skeptical or whatever word they used of stats. Uh, how much do you think that matters for this team? I mean, I know that there are areas that we can pick at and their weaknesses on every team it doesn't seem though that they it's not like they're out there just constantly making dumb moves like the stanton deal for instance seems like it was you know fairly actually fairly savvy when you look at how uh f- how backloaded it is and um and you know the 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 way that they sold off after 2012 they got really really strong returns they've had a couple of trades that i have liked since then is this a team where they're animus toward uh, animosity towards statistics, if it is there, is visible in any way. Do you think that they are run in a poor way or not? So that's really tough to to unpack for somebody who's not, you know, in there and and seeing the team, how the front office works on a regular basis, which I certainly am not. Uh, I will say this: I, I think that their lack of use of advanced statistics is probably—I would say at this point—it looks like it's worse than the Phillies. Um, I mean, I would consider them the the absolute low team on the totem pole at this point, just based on all that I've been trying to figure out about how they use advanced statistics. Has it hurt them as a squad? I don't really see it being something where they're just like out there like trading for guys with high BABIPs and things like that. I think that even the teams that don't use analytics can, um, like in the Marlins case, I mean, there's still the public data that's available to them. And even if they're not, you know, really, you know, got their own team of guys using R to develop proprietary metrics and stuff like that i think that the collective wisdom of baseball has gone up in such a way that even being the worst team in terms of analytics means that you're still going to know some things and like so they haven't had really good framing catchers and they brought in jeff mathis and they haven't necessarily focused on some of these uh some of these shifting things perhaps but i think at this point they do so many other things that that do come across as pretty well they they've been very good at acquiring and identifying talent at the minor league level and that makes up for so many shortcomings everywhere else i mean when you're when you draft christian yelich and and 
Jose Fernandez and, and Tyler Kolek and some of these other guys that they're drafting. I mean, you can forgive a lot of stuff if you if you do some small, smart things and some big, smart things that aren't necessarily analytics related. How is it that they've avoided the internet stigma for the most part of being a team that isn't into analytics? I mean, it, whoever the, the current internet punching bag is or the perception that a team is anti-stats, you know, whether it was the Royals in the past or maybe it's the Twins with their lack of strikeout pitchers or now, of course, it's the Phillies. These teams are always the punchlines for, for whatever joke is being made. And it doesn't seem like the Marlins ever are. Is it just that that we use up so much energy talking about Jeffrey Loria that we don't have any left to talk about their their analytics. Yeah, I think that's probably the main factor there, truthfully. And I think the second thing is that their management isn't openly disdainful of analytics, which, you know, Ruben Amaro obviously famously is. Um, but, you know, when you listen to Michael Hill or Dan Jennings talk, they they come across as smart, savvy baseball men. They don't come across as people who are openly hostile towards the idea of advanced analytics. So I think that just keeping your mouth shut a lot of the time saves you a lot of headaches and, and in terms of the public perception. Yeah. And you mentioned Yelich. How good is he going to be short term and long term? Because he he maybe gets overshadowed by being in the opposite outfield corner as Stanton, who is one of the, the you know higher profile people in the game and the face of the franchise and all that. But Yelich is pretty impressive in his own right. Well, I, I like to look at the I, every so often I'll just go back to the, the BP annual and the, the stats for him. And, you know, you look at his comps and they're they're Matt Kemp and David Wright and BJ Upton, who used to be great. And I mean, he's a really, really talented player. Uh, his defense well, I would say before last year didn't get him enough credit, but now he's a gold glover, so he gets plenty of credit for his defense. He's got great bat-to-ball skills. He can hit. He's going to be overshadowed by Giancarlo Stanton forever because he's not the same kind of dynamic home run hitter, but I think he's the type of player who projects well to be a above-average regular for five to seven years just because he has such a wide skill set. He's kind of like a—to me, he seems like a very poor man's Alex Gordon in left field. And uh, a really poor man's Alex Gordon is still a really, really good player. He could be very Melky Cabrera at his peak type for a long time, I feel like. It's a pretty good team, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm just looking at it. It's a, this looks like a pretty good team. Like, this is very competent. This could be, I mean, there's nothing about this team that screams not playoffs. <laughs> I mean, I would kind of disagree with that a little bit. I I, I kind of see them as a uh, top-heavy team, and that always scares me a little bit. And I don't see them as a very deep team in terms of their, their bench. Their bench looks scary to me. When Ichiro's your fourth outfielder, especially coming off the season that he had, like, that's bad news. But if everybody stays healthy, which, you know, never happens but it's it's a possibility then sure this could be a really good team but if you get into like the fifth and sixth starters on this team i mean but you can say that about everybody so no no no, you're right you can't you can't say that about everybody they the depth here is really disastrous like you're right at every position it's a kind of embarrassing backup and you're right the fifth and sixth starters uh the uh, the sixth and seventh at least are I think worse than the average, and the bullpen, the depth charts, they don't. It just doesn't go as long as other teams' bullpens. You know, some teams' depth charts on, uh, you know, when you go look at their depth chart, the bullpen's like thirty-five guys, and the Marlins <laughs> is like eight. So 
That's a to me. That's a pretty good proxy. That's like total Yelp reviews. To me, is is a better indication of how good a bullpen, uh, how good a restaurant is than how many stars they get. You know, like it, to me, a restaurant that has a thousand Yelp reviews is almost always good, and one with like twelve is almost always bad. And so, to me, this is the bullpen depth chart analogy of <laughs> Yelp. Um, well, so we can certainly agree that they are competitive, at least, and the Marlins haven't really, as a franchise, gone all that long at any one time between competitive teams, and they've kind of done it differently than some other teams have in that they haven't really, I mean, they've done the teardown rebuild and the sell-off and the fire sale, but it doesn't seem to take them that long to get back to this point where they're relevant again, whereas, uh, you know, the the Astros or the Cubs might have this several-year period where it's just widely understood that they are not going to contend, and that's that. And the Marlins don't seem to have that sort of systematic plan that those other franchises do, and yet they seem to have done a better job, perhaps, of avoiding those really depressing, long-lasting valleys. How have they done that? Player development? I mean, that's really the best guess that I can make for this, is that they have a, a real knack for developing not just big league regulars, but guys who have star-level quality, um, you know, dating back from, you know, Miguel Cabrera to today. Um, you know, they, they have a, a really good, system in place for acquiring um, undervalued talent from other teams when they do their inevitable fire sales. Um, you know, when when the Burley, Reyes, Josh Johnson trade happened, uh, the return, I think everybody thought was a little bit uh, uh, unspectacular um, for these these three players who are supposed to be, you know, two excellent starting pitchers and an all-star shortstop. And it turns out that in these cases, maybe the Marlins knew a little more than than the average, uh, you know, moron who was writing about it for SB Nation Tampa Bay at the time, like myself. Uh, they brought in Henderson Alvarez, who was, you know, maybe not a top tier prospect, but they've been able to turn him into or watch him develop into a, a really good pitcher. They've done this pretty consistently. You see a lot of players, um, you know, the Marlins produce very good regulars. And then they send them off to whatever team they're going to go become famous with later. But that allows them to be competitive and they spend money. They don't spend a lot of money. I think that's what prevents them from getting to the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows, or except for in the case of the, the Reyes Burley situation where they got out from underneath those guys very quickly. So if you're not spending a ton of money, you may not be able to get to the highs, but you may not be saddled with Ryan Howard level contracts that you can't get out of. And is the, the lack of loyalty that you mentioned in your essay also a factor there? I mean, have has being cut cutthroat and not particularly caring about their perception by the average fan helped them? I definitely think it has in some circumstances. I mean, they weren't beholden to, you know, keeping Josh Beckett around until he was going to blow his arm out. They weren't beholden to, especially when it comes to pitchers. I mean, pitchers are such a... I mean, to use the uh, the sabermetric term, I, they're a crapshoot. They're completely unpredictable in, in so many ways, uh, I feel like, even now because of the injuries, because of the performance swings that you see in a lot of guys. And I just really think that their ability to let go of guys and move them before they become a drag on either the team or the payroll uh, you know, makes them more agile. It makes them 
uh, you know, able to bring back talent in return for these guys, and it, it keeps them from holding on to a guy for too long. You know, you see with um, you know real famous players, uh, you know, the if the Marlins had David Wright of the Mets, he he would have been traded three years ago. That kind of thing, where you know, if he has a bad season now for the Mets, the Mets are really in trouble, and they the Marlins won't have that problem. All right, so we've kind of made you tip your hand already, but give us a prediction about how many games this team wins and where it finishes. So this is kind of funny. I've been going back and forth on this for weeks, uh, knowing that I was going to have to do this. I'm going to go low. I think I'm going to go a lot lower than what the, the general consensus might be on the Marlins because I'm I'm legitimately worried about their pitching and I'm legitimately worried about uh, their their depth. Uh, so I'm going to go with 78 wins for this team. I think they might wind up being third in the NL East behind the Mets and behind the Nationals. And I don't think they're going to get the bump from playing these terrible teams in the NL East. Uh, you know, they talk about the the Phillies being so bad and the Braves being so bad. I don't think that's going to be enough to keep them from having a disappointing season. And if that does happen, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how they try to come back from that. But I think the, there's a lot of stuff in play. If they if they won 85 games, 86 games, it wouldn't surprise me either. And if they do do that, is there any reason to think that people will watch, that people will go to the games? I don't think there's much reason to think that people are going to the games now. I mean, they didn't have great attendance last year, and they've done what they can to to act as if they are going to be an exciting team this year uh, without spending a ton of money to do it. And uh, I think that attendance is always going to be a problem for that team. Uh, but I, I know that if they really tank and if they get to a point the the end of the the middle of the season where it looks like they may trade off parts as opposed to you know stay competitive, kind of like they did through the uh, through the heart of last season, then yeah, I would expect you'll see you'll see three thousand people show up for some of the Tuesday games or something like that. All right, so we got through an entire interview about the Marlins without mentioning Jose Fernandez. <laughs> I don't have a question about Jose Fernandez, but I just wanted to say Jose Fernandez just to to make this interview more complete. We didn't forget about him. He's he's on the team theoretically. All right, so Brian is on Twitter at B Grosnick, G-R-O-S-N-I-C-K. He is the managing editor at Beyond the Box Score, excellent SB Nation analytics site. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, thanks, guys. Blue Jays. Blue Jays are next. <laughs> yes, Blue Jays are next on our team preview tour coming up tomorrow, but coming up sooner after the musical interlude. Sahadev will speak to Joe Frasaro of MLB.com. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, associate editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Joe Frasaro, Marlins beat writer for MLB.com. Joe, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. The the Marlins have have kind of become a team that's uh, 
on the rise once again. They're kind of a roller coaster of a franchise. I feel like every uh, it seems like every year where the people are down on them, or uh, and then the next year they're up on them, and, and right now they've become the en vogue team. What what gave the front office or ownership the confidence that they could go back and be aggressive on the market once again, and and really uh, try and put together a team that's winning now? Well, I mean, their checkered past and the ups and downs, a lot of it for 19 years stemmed from the fact they didn't have a ballpark. They were sharing it with Miami Dolphins. Uh, in 2012, they had their the opening of Marlins Park, their own building. They made the huge splash, hiring Ozzy Guillen to manage, they brought in Reyes, Burley. They kind of spent money they didn't really have, and they were kind of hopeful that everything would, you know, uh, interest and dollars would come pouring in based on the new building and a jazzy type team. Uh, that collection didn't go the way they kind of anticipated and rather kind of hold it together and they're building their payroll on projected um, attendance figure attendance figures they didn't meet. So consequently they dismantled that whole thing pretty quickly and took the huge PR hit and that, you know, still resonates today. But, you know, the building is still new. This, the building is still what they're hoping to be a revenue maker for them. And they're trying to really establish this ballpark and this, and this ball club. And it's just kind of the rebranding is happening in year four now in the new ballpark rather than 2012. That's kind of how they, they kind of are recovering. But it all, it all started with kind of spending more sensibly. And it's hard to say that when I'm about to say when you spend $325 million, uh, on one player, and that player who became really kind of the symbol and the and the centerpiece of the whole you know rebirth and the the rebranding and just the commitment to, to John Carlos Stanton. You know, he was as skeptical as anyone. I mean, everyone knows what he tweeted back in 2012, and they convinced him that this was a place, and, and Miami is an attractive place to play baseball. And you know, they still think Miami's a sleeping giant, and you know, locking up Stanton, getting him to buy in, it just kind of just changed the whole culture. It changed the whole uh, mindset within the organization and within the league. It's like, wow, these guys, it's not your typical, they couldn't afford him, they let him walk. And they surrounded him with, they feel, some nice complimentary pieces. But it's a team built around Stanton. And, and Jose Fernandez, when he returned sometime around midseason, they feel they have as good a starter in the game and as good a player in the game. So, you know, two good pieces there and everything's kind of falling into place. Yeah, that trade-off that you mentioned, it, it uh, you know, it was easy for everyone to, to say, oh, this is Jeffrey Loria, you know, once again, the, the nefarious owner being do, doing what he does, always, uh, you know, screwing people over and whatnot. But it 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 seems like, you know, at the time, there were there was maybe, a, a, maybe it was a minority, but there were people that were saying this – you know, this may actually be the smart move, oh, and, it's, and it's turning out that this is the. Yeah. The, this looks like it could lead to sustained success. Yes, it, it does in its own twisted way, and yeah. and yeah, I mean, obviously, you you sold yourself as kind of this rock star reality TV show, uh, the flashy uniforms, the you know the colorful um, you know new ballpark with the the giant eyesore as the home run sculpture. You know, everything was so in your face. And then to just pull that out, obviously you're going to set yourself up for huge ridicule and criticism. And then they certainly got it. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, some teams are a little more PR conscious than others, but the Marlins have never really 
hesitated to say, look, we don't like this collection. We don't like this mix. So therefore, let's just get rid of it. And, you know, I think you're starting now across the board and all sports seeing it. I mean, the A's obviously have their turnover, but, you know, they go to the playoffs last year and break it up, you know, and you're seeing, you know, in other sports, uh, coaches uh, with the Denver Broncos, the Broncos, they fire their coach right after they go to the playoffs. It's starting to become, you know, you don't like it at the top. Boom, we're going to, we're going to, you know, going to kind of mix it up. And another another thing too that they did was there was there was a divide in the front office uh, back in twelve and even beforehand and and they replaced Larry Beinfest with Michael Hill and moved Dan Jennings up to the GM job and they just kind of reshuffled their front office a bit and these guys their plan is look you know we're going to have to be sensible in our spending yet we're going to kind of build this right we're looking for a certain type of player. You know, if they don't want to be here, we're, we're looking for something in that image. And we're going to build this the right way. And another thing, going back to 12 real fast, was that the minor league system was, was depleted. You know, so by making the seven-player trade with Toronto, they gained, you know, or the 12-player trade, Marlins got seven players in that deal. They got, you know, high-end prospects, which they, in turn, kind of flipped uh, Marisnik as part of the um, – Jared Kosar trade. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, they flipped um, uh, who they, you know, so Descafani is getting Matt Latos, and you know they're they've been able to use some of the depth they were able to, you know, build in their farm system last couple of years, as well as they traded away some number one uh, their their first round picks to get you know the D Gordons and and some players that they feel are ready to help them win now. You mentioned uh, fans still, uh, maybe some bad blood with the fans still. What What is the fan situation like? What's And I have to be honest, I guess I don't know what the history is uh, of, of uh, Marlins fans. Obviously, it's not that long of a history. But when, when the team has been good, have they supported the team? Have they come out? Uh, and and what, what what are the expectations now? Yeah, see, back in 03, when they won it all, you know, they finished with 1.3 million fans. They were like 26, 27th in the league in attendance. But that was, there were, no one really bought into, you know, the plan. They thought they were going to trade Mike Lowell and, and those guys, and they signed Pudge. And, and then they started showing up in September when they're like, hey, they might go with the wild card. And, you know, so it, and then, you know, some people might say, they, a lot of people say they broke that team up right away. Well, they traded Derek Lee and they didn't resign Pudge. And then they kept that team pretty much together through 2005 adding Carlos Delgado at the time they were looking to get a new ballpark and that was being shot down. And, you know, they, they have winning records, attendance to go up a bit, but you know, they didn't eclipse 2 million. So, you know, just the, the fan mistrust and the, and the, and the ownership mistrust of the market kind of was this, you know, chasing its tail, dog chasing its tail kind of scenario. But I think right now you, you have, the franchise is like 21, 22 years old now. Um, you have kids that were born with the Marlins, grew up with the Marlins. Michael Morse uh, grew up a Marlins fan. Now he's playing for the Marlins. You know, uh, Matt Lathos and Michael Morse both were at the inaugural game in franchise history back in 93, you know, and, you know, at, at the old Sunlight Stadium, Dolphin Stadium. And so you're kind of getting another generation, but it, it's obviously they have to show them. I mean, and the fans, you know, feel they've been burned and, you know, for good reason. You know, this, you know, you had managers coming and going, you had, 
you know, players coming and going. And now, you know, keeping Stanton is sign one, you know, and they, and they gave him now, whether he stays, you know, 13 years or not, who knows, but because there's not that after six years, mm-hmm. but they have him for six more years and he's already been here four or five years. So, you know, they, they got the guy. I mean, you, they couldn't lose, you know, they, they had the Cabrera trade, Miguel Cabrera trade him and which they felt they needed to do because at the time their stadium plans kept falling apart. So they felt there was no way they were going to be able to afford him. So they tried to move him. That trade became a disaster. You can't have a generational player like Miguel Cabrera and Giancarlo Stanton and not sign either one. I mean, that the fact that they were able to convince, you know, uh, Michael Hill, Dan Jennings, they were able to convince Jeffrey Laurie that we can't lose him at any cost um, was a big, big, to me, turning point. And if they get to where they hope to get this year, and it looks like they build a window of four or five years where they should be pretty good, you know, that is going to be the turning point of it all. I mean, we know how good Stanton is. Stanton's a superstar, potential MVP candidate year in and year out as long as he's healthy. But that outfield, he's the oldest player in that outfield, and it's really talented. Just how good uh, can Christian Yellick and Marcelo Suna be? Yeah, you got two two of the real rising young stars who – both to, last year was their first full seasons in the big leagues, and both really did some nice things. I mean, Yelch is a kid and left. You know, he won the Gold Glove. It kind of startled all of us because his arm isn't great. He, you know, he's a fast kid, an athletic kid, and Marlins Park left field is really big. Uh, but you know, he, he's a he's a hitter. I mean, he's a guy who I've had many scouts tell me they think Anthony Rendon of the Nationals and Christian Yelich of the Marlins are going to be fighting out for batting titles for years to come, and. You know, they feel they have a perennial 300 hitter, a lefty bat. Um, in a, you know, they haven't had a lot of lefty bats in their history that have been real productive. Uh, a guy who's going to hit probably second this year. But down the line, Mike, you know, as his body fills out, he's just 23 and a young 23. Um, that this guy could be a number three caliber hitter. And Ozuna in center, he's got a lot of the same skill sets that Yasiel Puig. His strong arm, a lot of power athletic he's not your prototypical center fielder per se he doesn't you know have that sleek frame but you know he's got a great arm he's he covers enough ground and this is a 30 home run potential guy you know he had 23 or so last year and in marlins park that's a, not an easy task so he's got 30 homers in him and you know in stanton you know he just got 40 or more you know, they feel they have the best outfield in the National League. And then they got the 41-year-old, the guy named Ichiro, coming off the bench, who's looking really good. So they think they got something special, and that's clearly the strength of their team. Uh, you know, Matt Latos caused a little drama, uh, at least in Red's camp, with some comments that he made to Ken Rosenthal. Did, was, how was that handled uh, with the Marlins? Was that just like quickly, you know, just something that quickly was brushed off? And, and is, he, is he fitting in well with the Marlins? Yeah, it, it was kind of unfortunate, and... You know, it kind of got him to, to clam up a little bit from talking to us for a while until it kind of simmered down. It really didn't make any headlines here other than just acknowledging that it was happening in Cincinnati. Uh, but, you know, here's a guy. He's here one year. You know, he's mm-hmm. not signed long-term. They even went to an arbitration hearing with him. They couldn't even resolve, you know, the you know their one-year contract in the final year of his um you know, before he hits for agency, his final year of arbitration. So it didn't get off to the greatest start, but Latos is a pro. He's, you know, he's been around. He's, he's a guy that obviously is going to be pitching for a contract as well 
as trying to take a, a good young team to the playoffs. So um, he'll be real interesting, you know, because I, I still haven't ruled out if, you know, they did, the Marlins didn't make a strong push for, um, for James Shields and obviously came up short. And you just kind of wonder if this guy does and shows anything, if they do approach him and, and try to give him an extension. But, you know, when, when the first, you know, real business that you're doing is in an arbitration hearing that doesn't exactly set the right tempo uh, to, to work out a long-term deal. But I think we're all interested in to see if he's going to be healthy and, and productive. But, you know, the comments he made to Ken, you know, seem to be more of an issue in, in Cincinnati than it is in South Florida. Yeah, that definitely caused uh, <laughs> some issues uh, with the Reds. But, uh, you know, there's I guess there's uh, still a question with Dan Heron. Has that been cleared up? Is he is he ready to to play for Miami? What's what's his situation? Is he happy to be there? Yeah, as happy as he can be. I mean, he you know, he clearly made his comments and expressed he's what, 34 years old now and in the career winding down, uh, you know, very durable. That's for sure. With 10 straight years of 30 or more starts. Um, you know, he, his preference was to be out West. And I think he was, you know, kind of blindsided about the trade, but from, you know, he's being a pro. I mean, he's, uh, he informed the team like, uh, kind of right before the whole shields thing, you know, finalized itself, which is probably a really good thing for the Marlins because if they would have lost Heron and had, hadn't signed shields and they have, you know, good candidates for a rotation spot, but, with what their nationals and Mets have, you want as strong a rotation as you can get. Uh, but to answer your question, um, uh, Heron will be starting their spring opener against Cardinals tomorrow, and he will be in the rotation. And um, everything is, you know, he's on board. You know, he told them, I'm not going to be an issue. It's not like they're going to sit there and say, oh, there's an injury in Giant Camp or an injury in Dodger Camp. Uh, can I get traded there? You know, I, I don't think you're, you're not going to see that. you got a guy that going to have to you know, do his part and you know this isn't this is a, a, a real fun team to be around the guys that are here uh, the culture they've created it, it's you know in 12 also it's a little bit of a hectic crazy culture here it's you know it's loose these guys are energized they all get along and if Herring can't fit in here I don't know how many places he could uh, Jose Fernandez, I believe the the optimistic or expectation, I guess, is June return. Well, uh, how is he, yeah, is he present? Case, yeah. yeah, is he present? Is he there? And is it? What's the thoughts as far as an extension with him? It, would it be you know after the season, or is it is it even something that's yeah. discussed at all? Well, here's a guy who's um, going to go into arbitration next year. I mean, he's. Uh, about Jose on the mound in his recovery and his progression, he's uh, he's already thrown his first bullpen. Okay. Uh, you know, excuse me, off the mound. Yes, a bullpen. He did that on Sunday. He's going to be on a Sunday Thursday schedule, or excuse me, a Monday Thursday schedule. He happened to start off doing Sunday, but beginning next week he'll be Monday Thursday, and you know he's going to you know start off obviously on the DL. And he's going to do all this stuff in Jupiter. But yes, he's here at camp. He's, he looks really good. He, he's, uh, you know, he's 22 now and, you know, his upper body strength has, has gotten better. He, he's big. He looks strong and the ball's really coming out of his hand really well right now. And, you know, what you see in terms of 15 fastballs off the mound is, is pretty impressive. And, uh, best case scenario, June 15th and, uh, maybe the most realistic is the all-star break. Oh, as for an extension, 
He's represented by Scott Boris. Oh. And, um, you know, so that's not the highest priority from that camp. Okay. But they have him, they have him at least four more years. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I figure once you say Scott Boris, that's that makes things a lot harder. You know, as far as uh, the biggest storyline from this team, maybe maybe not the the key for the season, but what's for you as a as a reporter, what are you most interested in covering for the 2015 Marlins? Um, well, I think it's this is a team that's kind of growing. We don't know, like you said, you don't have good Yelich or Zuna, you know, Stanton. I mean, is Stanton going to you know, put the injury behind him and become this monster player with, with, you know, more speed at top of the order, more power behind him. Is he going to really push Trout as the best player in baseball? Cause he can do it. I mean, he's got it all there. Um, he's going to have to be more consistent. I'm, I don't really think the hit in the face as horrific as that was to see and all that he went through. Right now, what I'm seeing with him is just a timing thing more than anything, not a flinching no because you know, pitches coming at him. But once he gets back into game shape, which should be in a couple of weeks, and, you know, is he going to be that kind of player? Uh, but I, I think they're going to score enough runs. I think their bullpen's pretty good. I think they got more depth than they've had in years. They got guys that are going to be cut that would be, you know, prominent bench guys or possibly starters on other teams. And it's going to come down to the rotation. You know, you got the Nationals. I mean, they're going to try to win the division. They're not conceding anything. So, you know, you're going to have to get Jose back. You're going to have to get Henderson Alvarez, who was an all-star last year, pitching at a high level yet again. You're going to need Latos, who missed, what, half the season with injury in Cincinnati to pitch at a high level. Um, you know, you're going to need Heron to not have further decline. You got Jared Tosart and Tom Cole are two really good young right-handers who have a lot of upside, but they got to keep doing it. So, I, to me, the key is going to be the rotation. You know, if they could... If that rotation could give them good six, seven, they're gonna. It's gonna be a real fun National League East if that if that happens. Uh, I usually end with that question, but I just remembered I wanted to ask about Mike Redmond. I, you know, I'm always curious with with managers who haven't really had that opportunity to. Uh, to manage with expectations, I guess. Uh, what type of manager has he proven to be or shown to be? It's, I guess it's hard. I always, uh, I always think it's hard to judge a guy when, when you don't have a ton of talent on, uh, on the, on the roster, or, you know, a lot of expectations. But what, what, what do you see from him as far as, is he a clubhouse guy? Is he, how is he in game? Like what are his strengths and what are yeah, his weaknesses? He, yeah. His, with Red, he obviously, when you take over, a team that you know you're going to have 20 rookies on, which he did in 13, and you knew there were zero expectations and everyone projecting 100 losses or more, and then you do lose 100. Yet what they were able to do that year was, you know, just kind of hold it together as, as tough as that was. And then with just a few moves and a motivated and healthy Stanton in 14, you make up 15 games and you're – you know, you win 77, and you were, what, three out, I think, when Stanton got hurt in the wild card, the second wild card. You know, huge progress last year. And, you know, just changing the culture. Red is, and I covered him as a player. And this guy was that guy you always were kind of joking with, and people on the team would say, this guy's going to manage like that. And his first year in you know, two really was, was teaching and, you know, showing guys what it's like to be in the big league. And his temperament and his ability to communicate and connect with players, that's his strength. This guy, you know, he keeps things loose. He's, you want to play for me. You want to play hard. 
now, after two years of kind of the teaching aspect, now it's going to be, you know, he's going to be evaluated more on that strategic move, which sometimes it looks like, you know, when you're developing, you may go with a player an inning or two more or, or give them a, another 10 starts or another 15 at-bats. You know, you just wonder with expectation and, and yeah, the Marlins feel they have a playoff team, but how many teams in the National League also do? You know, and that, mm-hmm. that line is pretty thin. So, you know, these games, this should be a real interesting year, but, you know, these April games are going to be really important, you know, and, and it's going to carry all the way through. So I'm curious to see, Red, the manager, if, you know, how he manages with – I'm not going to say he doesn't have urgency, but just that kind of feeling of we can't let this slip away. I'm not, you know, going to just keep running this guy out there if it's not getting it done. But I also think he's got some really good pieces that he should be able to mix and match. And, and you know, he's growing as a team. You know, he, he's made mistakes and uh, as his team had. But here is a young manager, a guy only three or four years removed from his playing days. Um, he makes his mistakes, but they're all kind of growing together. So it's a very interesting and kind of from internally an exciting uh, time right now for the Marlins because he got – kind of the guy who seems like the right manager at the right time with the team that just kind of seems like, you know, if we have this conversation in August, you say, no, when we talk back the early spring training, <laughs> that these guys really became a very exciting team. And, and it just, you know, it, it all kind of stems from the culture that Red has created. Joe, thanks so much for your time. Before I let you go, why don't you uh, let the listeners uh, know where they can read your work and also where they can find you on Twitter or whatever else you may be, uh, whatever else you'd like to promote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously at, at malls.com and MLB.com. And um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Joe Brissaro, if you kind of step old, J-O-E-F-R-I-S-A-R-O. And uh, my uh, blog on the site is called The Fish Pond on MLB.com. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you having me, and um, you have a good night. You too, Joe Frisaro, Marlins beat writer for MLB.com. I'm Sahadev Sharma. Uh, you could read my work at Baseball Prospectus, and of course, follow me at Sahadev Sharma on Twitter. Thanks so much for your time, Joe. Take care. All right, have a good, have a good one. All right, Marlins Team Preview Podcast complete. Thank you for listening. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Almost 2,500 listeners in the group now. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And my periodic reminder to check out Banish to the Pen, banishtothepen.com, the blog that is written and run by Effectively Wild listeners. They are doing a team preview series of their own, putting up posts about each team as we go along in this series. So you can go read the Marlins post right now if you'd like. And we ask you to support our podcast by supporting our sponsor, the BaseballReference.com Play Index. Go to Baseball Reference, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow with the Blue Jays team preview. All right. All right. Stratego? Yeah, sure. I'm down. (laughs) See ya.